Built Not Born, episode 131. Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Lieutenant Case Wilson. Case Wilson is a veteran of both the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force, where he currently serves in the Pennsylvania Air National Guard. Lieutenant Wilson served two tours in Afghanistan with the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. He also served a tour in Iraq fighting ISIS with the U.S. Army's 1st Infantry Division. Case has a fascinating background in the military. Initially, he served in the U.S. Army's 3rd Infantry Regiment called the Old Guard Ceremonial Unit in Washington, D.C., where he was the 547th soldier ever to complete the training to guard the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. Lieutenant Wilson also took part in the funeral of President Gerald Ford. He completed flight school and was selected to fly the Apache attack helicopter. Lieutenant Wilson and I talk what it's like flying the Apache helicopter in, in a war zone, taking part of rescue missions to rescue soldiers on the ground. Then his career pivoted. Lieutenant Wilson then enlisted in the United States Air Force. Now he's flying drones halfway around the world. We also touch on the topic of mental health. It was so great to speak with Lieutenant Wilson. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button, or better yet, all our interviews are now streaming on YouTube. If you could give us a follow on YouTube, I'd appreciate it. Enjoy my conversation with Lieutenant Case Wilson. And remember, life is built, not born. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I am so pumped to be here, Joe. I appreciate you. Every time you start the podcast, you usually ask, tell me who you are. Tell me about yourself. And Joe, I'm telling you, that's such a, like a humbling question, right? Yeah. Because when you jump into it, you're like, hey, have you done enough in your life to succinctly give yourself a label that's meaningful? That's rough. That's a big question. It, it, it is. I appreciate you saying that. Here we go. Case Wilson. Welcome to the show. Joe, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here and I appreciate the invite. Case, it is an honor to have you on. So Case, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> so we, we were talking about that being a tough question to, to put a succinct label on it, but I think to answer your question, I'm a husband to an amazing wife. I'm a dad to two awesome kids. I'm a veteran of the Army and the Air Force, still serving. And I hit 20 years next summer. So really, I'm just a, a guy trying to figure out what he wants to do when he grows up and, and trying to do some cool things along the way. That's great. Case, uh, I would like to get into your amazing career of service to our country. As you mentioned, you were in the Army. You served in the Air Force. You're going on 20 years combined service. The time you spent as guarding the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, your work in the Honor Guard for presidential funerals, your two deployments to Afghanistan with the 82nd Airborne, coming fighting the Taliban, your tour in Iraq fighting ISIS in, in northern Syria and Iraq, so much to cover. 
Uh, some of your struggles that you're so open with, uh, some of the things that you've mentioned in the past, maybe we can go into. Uh, it, it's just amazing, amazing, amazing uh, career service. But uh, before we do that, I'd like to start back all the way from the beginning. Where'd you grow? Let's go. Yeah. So uh, kind of all over. Um, born in Wisconsin and then moved real quick after that. My mom was a, a single mom to my older brother and me. She went to school in Northern Ohio for a while, then went to uh, Western Pennsylvania for master's and then got a job in Central Kentucky. So this was all before six years old. We landed in uh, Central Kentucky at six years old. And then I was fortunate enough to grow up right there, just South of Lexington. So I find like around 10, 12 years old, a very formative time in kids' lives especially the dinner table. I find the dinner table like a microcosm of your life at that moment, like when you're sitting around and having a full dinner of whoever you're living with at the time. So could you describe the dinner table, say 10, 12 years old, who was there, what was going on? Yeah. So when we moved to Kentucky, mom got a job at uh, a college there, a small liberal arts college. And she met a guy um, who was previously married, also divorced. And then they kind of hit it off and and he found his way into our life as my stepdad and, and then just fell right into the role as dad. By that time, 10, 12, you're talking, my older brother's 15, me being 10, 12, we got a newborn. I got my little brother. He's 10 years younger than me. So that's the three of us around the table at the end of the day with mom and, and dad there just hanging out, talking about the day. If someone asked the 18-year-old version of Case Wilson what he wanted to be when he grew up, what would the 18-year-old version of you say? Wow. I, I think getting into the army was kind of a, an overlap, right? Of, of selflessness and selfishness. Uh, and if you give me just the leeway to explain, we'll start with the, I guess the more glamorous one, the selflessness, doing something just bigger than myself. I was a sophomore in high school when 9-11 happened. My older brother was in basic training for the infantry during 9-11. And you could just see the writing on the wall that we were going to be involved in that conflict for quite a while. But the self-ish side of it, I 18-year-old me had no idea what I wanted to do. I think I had some passions and stuff, but really kind of intimidated by the opportunities that lay ahead. And I had no idea what direction to go in. But the Army offered me the ability to continue to be productive with that, uh, continue to, to grow and develop myself and my experiences without really having to, to come straight forward with it and say, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So at 18, you enlist in the army between junior and senior year, and you left for basic training two weeks after graduation. Take us from there. <laughs> yeah, I, it was funny. When I signed up, my recruiter said, do you want to go later in the summer, you know, have a, have a good last time, or do you want to go early? I said, I better go early because I don't want to get a taste of graduated life and move on from that and regret my choices there. So uh, two weeks after, and I, I left for basic on June 8th, my mom's birthday. So I kind of felt like a bad son there, but go to basic training at, at Fort Benning, hottest part of the year, and then just get to the infantry school. I had orders follow on to go to Germany, but mid basic training, the recruiter from the 3rd Infantry Regiment, the Old Guard, the ceremonial unit in DC came by and that initial meeting with him was kind of a, if you're this tall and you have this high of test scores and 
these criteria here. Come over here. This guy wants to talk to you all. So the group whittled down to about six of us. And I knew exactly what it was because my older brother, flash forward, he's at the old guard in DC at this time when I'm going to basic training. So I knew exactly what it was. And I thought, I don't know what the road to get there looks like once you're in the army. So maybe take an opportunity to go there right off. So I volunteered to, to go to DC right off because I was, would have been the fifth one in my family to be there. An wow. uncle, two cousins, my older brother and myself. So Yep. Volunteered there. The orders to Germany were deleted. Orders to DC were cut. I graduated infantry basic in, I think, September of 04. And off to DC, I was. The old guard. So the, the ceremonial, like Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, like in Arlington, is that what you're speaking of? That's part of it. That's a really small part of it. The old guard being a, an infantry regiment, if you're a history buff, it's the act, oldest active infantry regiment in, in the army. It's a regiment. So several companies of guys, each company has uh, around 100 guys in it. So this unit is responsible for all of the ceremonies you see, all of the funerals in Arlington, all of the heads of state dignitaries that come over and visit. Anytime you see at that point, the blues jacket and the, the blues pants with the gold stripe, those, those were going to be the old guard. And then the Continental Color Guard was part of that as well. The Old Guard has some specialty platoons, the tomb being one of them, Continental Color Guard, the U.S. Army Drill Team was one, and then the Presidential Salute Battery, the guys that have the, the large howitzers that are just gloss black. So that's what my older brother did. He was on the Presidential Salute Battery. And actually, just a, a cool, quick piece there, my older brother was on President Reagan's funeral. Wow. And, and we can get to that, but... I was lucky enough to be on President Ford's funeral. So two brothers, two presidential funerals, uh, pretty pretty cool lineage there. That's amazing. That is amazing. So you are part of the old guard, right? So what point did you get involved in maybe like the ceremonial side and what part of it is like you're, you're preparing for combat? Like wh how does that broken up? Yeah, so the, the, the sole purpose of the old guard is to be the ceremonial infantry unit. I mean, we do some maybe a little bit of tactical training here and there, but nothing like what the, uh, the the units that are devoted to going to combat are doing. So our focus is strictly ceremonial, we'll call it. Um, and you just jump right into that. So you're welcomed to the unit and you go through about a three-week training program. It's called the Regimental Indoctrination Program or Orientation Program. Basically, how to wear the uniform the way they want you to, a little bit more attention to detail, how to march the way that they want you to, and how to carry uh, the ceremonial weapon, which is the M14 at the time. So you're going through learning all the facing movements, the, the ceremony structure uh, that, that we typically do. And then they have what's called a standing proficiency test, which boiled down to it, it's can you stand in, in one place for about 45 minutes at a time, maybe changing positions from attention to a parade rest kind of thing every once in a while. So that comes into play about two weeks into my regimental orientation program, a recruiter from the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier comes down. And I was familiar with the tomb because I think my senior year, I came out to visit my older brother and he took me down there. And I just remember standing on the steps, watching that ceremony, completely in awe uh, of those guys that are out there doing the job. And it was phenomenal because here you have the old guard that is the best ceremonial unit, I'll say, in the DOD, Department of Defense. And then you go into the cemetery and you see 
an even more rare slice of that at the tomb. It was just awe-inspiring. So I knew exactly what it was. So flash forward, I'm in rope, standing there at attention, head and eyes straight forward. And this recruiter comes up and he says, hey, do you want to be something bigger than yourself? Blink twice if you do. And I, I didn't know what he was getting at. And he was like, all right, I, I didn't blink or anything. I just kind of stood there and he goes, we'll talk again. And he put his card in the lapel of my jacket. So after the day ended, when we're free to go, I look at his card and it, there it was Sergeant Matt Creeb from the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And I thought, man, that's a really cool invite, but such an intimidating proposition, I suppose, for, for me to go down there. So I talked to my older brother about it, talked to some of the guys in his unit and talked to some of the guys that were in my unit. And it was like, hey, man, if, if that's something that you want to do, maybe go uh, and see if that works. So the next time uh, he came to visit the, the the rope course there, I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and volunteer for that. Immediately went down to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier where there was a two-week tryout. And the, the, the tryout is literally just to see if you're trainable. I mean, you're not going to you're not going to impress anybody when you're there. They just want to see what kind of stuff you're made of. The two-week tryout, they teach you even more detail about their uniform, the changing of the guard sequence, and they give you seven pages of information to memorize word for word. And at the end of the two weeks, you test out and they see if you put enough effort in to say, hey, we can work with this guy or not. And they'll, they ask some guys to stay and ask some guys to thank them for what they did and, and send them back to the regiment. But I was fortunate enough to get through that and assigned to a relief at the tomb to start training. You get accepted to go into the training of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Take us from there. Yeah. Uh, so you're assigned to one of three reliefs and you are now on a about a 27 hour shift. You work day on, day off, day on, day off, day on, and then four days off while the other two reliefs are going back and forth. And you show up first thing in the morning with all of your uniforms in as best shape as you can get them. I'm talking everything measured to the 64th of an inch, pressed out and clean and lint free. Your shoes, they were leather at the time. Um, the ultimate goal being that they were shiny enough to see the reflection of the texture in your teeth all over the shoe. Everywhere else in the army has this, this shiny plastic that's like, yeah, that's pretty shiny. You don't know it until you're using 2000 grit sandpaper on your leather shoe to, to really smooth it down and get that shininess. You show up in the morning, they inspect your uniform for the day, and then you are a new guy in training. And every because you can't have a, uh, a live run in training at the tomb, you have to earn your way outside. So that's memorizing even more information about the cemetery, people interred there, the stories revolving around the history of the, the cemetery or the army, the uniform just getting down to even more detail, uh, just impeccable detail. The, the end inspection, I think, has like a 200 items to check. And you can only miss about six or seven of them, and none of them can be major. And then you have the the outside performance, which again is is just a sight to see. The timing, the precision, the posture. You're training for that, so you're standing in front of three sides of mirrors with this rifle, and you're going through the motions. And your trainer says, "Stop," and you have to look at the angle. Are you at ninety degrees? Does it need to come this way or this way? out or in? Do you need to stand up straight? Do you need to lean forward? 
all the details involved with that to really hone in on that. And I, I think the importance of the training in that is to not just nail the details, but understand the why in the details. Mm -hmm. And for, for me, the de definition of that was what you as an individual are giving to the unknowns. So for those who don't know, the unknowns in Arlington are unknown soldiers from World War I, World War II, and Korea. They had um, a crypt from Vietnam, and they were able to identify that soldier disinter him, return him to his family, um, <clears throat> and inter him in Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery in Missouri. So when you're talking about the sacrifice that these unknowns have given, you're talking about not just their lives, the ultimate sacrifice for their country, but their identities as well. And with that, without any vote of the loved ones, they sacrifice their loved ones' understanding of where their loved one is at that time. So They've given that and to their for whatever cause they were fighting at that time. And that devotion to duty and, and sacrifice for this nation is worth uh, an 18-year-old kid who doesn't really know what he's doing in life to just give his absolute best to hit all the small details for that duty. Yeah. With all those small details and that just absolute perfection that that position requires and then just all the the weight of history and reverence that's in that position that it's that it stands for. How much stress are you under doing that? A huge amount. Uh, it. I did not know it at the time, Joe, but <clears throat> I fell into alcoholism, believe it or not, because, and I didn't know this until years later when I was trying to explain it to my wife, and she was like, "Yeah, that that sounds a lot like you were uh, an alcoholic," but it was, it was. I would pour everything into the duty when I was there. And then when I was off, it's so demanding for your effort to put in. You're talking about getting off shift, going back to your room, sleeping for three hours, waking up, shining your shoes, painting your scabbard, uh, the, the thing that the bayonet sits in when you're, it's on your belt. You're pressing your uniforms, your raincoat, your overcoat, your white shirt, your tie, your pants, uh, and you're just given everything you've got to that and you're going to sleep and getting up the next day and, and doing it. So on those four days, I found that I was kind of just drinking way too much because I knew better than to touch my uniform if I was sober. But uh, if I was sober and I wasn't working on my uniform, I was just overcome with massive amount of guilt or like shame and that I can't, I can't do this. So, um, you know, you kind of turn to something that you think is going to make you feel better in that. And uh, it just, that of course, made it worse because I, I hit a plateau in my progress um, mm -hmm. at the tomb because the training is not a defined timeline. It's not a, you know, if you just get through these 90 days, you're good to go. They test you when they see that you have reached uh, the next level in that. And the tests, um, imagine taking the hardest test that you've ever taken four different times. And each time you take it, you can make less and less mistakes. So you know what's coming. Uh, it's just, can you meet the standard that's expected of you? Mm -hmm. And so I, I stalled out a little bit, uh, in, in my first summer there, I, you know, I went into it with a little bit of talent and I thought that that was good enough to carry me through. And, and, uh, I, I just wasn't devoting everything that I had to stay in a positive direction with that. So, uh, through whether it was me just being stubborn as hell, um, too, too stubborn to quit 
or or whatever it was, uh, you know, even grace of God, it was just able to kind of push through that and finally make the developments that I needed to. And I passed training in 2005 and became the 547th badge holder there. And I stopped drinking too. <laughs> so that was good. So in that position, you, you were there, you, get, you, you came under a lot of stress, you started drinking. So you kind of kicked the drinking habit while you were there, like in that process? No. Um, after, just after I left the tomb in March of 06, uh, I met my wife on a blind date uh, at, a, at a baseball game. And that's a whole other branch of story that I'd love to, to get into. But when we were dating and, and getting serious, um, it was still very prevalent. I would, I would be drinking when I was with her just all, all the time, just trying to lighten up and have, have fun, quote unquote. And uh, she sat me down one time and just said, hey, how do you expect to be in control in a relationship if you can't even control the alcohol that you're taking in? And I went from there and I think it was a little over a year that I didn't even touch a drop of alcohol. So that kicked it for me. Wow. Nothing like a, a good wife to put you in line, right? Oh my goodness. That's, <laughs> That's right. How hard was it to qu quit cold turkey? I sound like you just, you just shut it off right there. How hard was that to do? For me personally, I, I had the motivation because it was like, no, I, I can, I can get my ass in gear when I need to just mm -hmm. watch this. So it was a, yeah. it was an easy thing to stop. And, you know, I think maybe four or five months into it, we're hanging out and, and my wife, Hillary says, you know, you, you can, you can have a drink. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a big deal. I was like, no, 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 no. This is, this is absolute control for me. So not even any. So that was, um, for me, it was easier, I think, but at the same time, I wasn't in the same environment of stress that was pushing me to that in the first place. So okay. I think I was in a better spot. Yeah, that's great. Now, thank you for sharing that. Just came back to the tomb. I've been there a few times to Arlington. I was there high school, college with my wife, with my kids, like probably four or five trips there. And in there in the winter, in there in the summer, like a hundred degrees. And it's just like, it's like, it's no factor, the weather, like it's raining, no factor. Like there's just, yeah. every, they're so dialed and it's just the weapons are clicking over and it's just like snaps in the place. Um, what, I just can't imagine how much pressure, like when you go out on a, sh a, a, a shift, a say you go out or yeah. a, a complete revolution, whatever you want to call it, what, how much pressure do you feel pressure or is the training so high that you're an autopilot? What is that like? All of it, all of what you just said. So at the beginning, that's all you recognize. Oh my gosh, you turn the corner, uh, you know, you get to the, the, the inspection block and you turn left and you're facing down the mat and maybe and it doesn't matter what season there are always people there in the summer plenty more but uh i was lucky enough to start kind of in the winter but uh you you see it you just turn left and you're just like oh my gosh there are hundreds of people here and they're here uh, they're going to notice everything about it but then you start realizing that to hit these points of performance you've got a constant monologue in your in your head going about the timing for this or do this or if you know you have tendencies, you're, I would start with a checklist. And by the time you roll through it, it's just automatic. Um, but it would, it would be like, you know, you're standing up straight, your chin is back, your chin is tucked down, your, your shoulders are back, you're standing here, you bring this up, I know my tendency is to go bayonet in. So I'll, I'll correct a little bit out. 
and you're just thinking of these things and the people just end up disappearing mm-hmm. out, of, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. You're just so focused on the, the job, but then you go through a, a revolution where all of that checklist stuff that you were thinking about becomes automatic. And it's almost like you have two parallel trains of thought going at once. You know, the, the first train of thought is absolutely doing the job, making sure that you're uh, doing everything that you need to. And then the second is just being kind of aware of the world around you. And you're thinking about, oh, I wonder what, what I'm going to have for dinner tonight, or <laughs> what do I want to do to my car and, you know, all this stuff. And, and then all of a sudden it's time to turn after the 21 seconds. Cause you've got this, we, we used to train with a metronome. So you would set this clock back and forth and you would train yourself to be able to count 21 seconds. And then you'd turn and look at the clock. And if it was, um, you know, if it was off, you just do it again. And if next time you're there, uh, take a look. The, the the plaza out there is made of rectangular blocks. And each one of those blocks has a line, maybe not on the mat, but elsewhere. Anytime you come up to a line, the standard was that you were no more than an inch behind it and no more than a hair over it. You're not, you're not going over that line. So what I would do to train that would be at night, uh, when the cemetery closes, we change into uh, the the camo uniform, and we're still wearing the shoes that we would wear just to have the training feel. And I would start at the the gate, and I would walk to my first line, and I would stop. I would look down. If I hit that line the way I wanted to, I go to the next block. If I missed it, I start back over. And I would just do that until I hit every line that I needed to without even thinking about it. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And then that guard you were in, you mentioned President Ford's funeral. Is that the same, uh, is, is that the same company you were in to do President Ford's funeral? Same company. Yeah. Different, different platoon. <clears throat> so I left the tomb in 2006 and went back to honor guard company. And they're the ones that specialize in joint service ceremonies. So missions at the Capitol, at the Pentagon, at the White House, got to do a lot of really cool things in in a lot of cool places. And part of that was being on the immediate call away team for if a president uh, passes away. So that was, gosh, I think it was the day after Christmas. I had proposed to Hillary on Christmas. And then the day after Christmas, we got notified that President Ford had died. And in six hours, I was on a C-17 flying to California to do that portion out there. Then President Ford flew to lay in state in D.C. We flew to Michigan, where his final uh, resting place would be, to practice on site there to do the ceremonies that we would after he lays in state and goes up to, to Michigan there. So I spent my first engaged New Year's in a different time zone than my fiance at the time. So, yeah, she she got a good exposure to the military life, even when we were in DC with no, no distraction of combat, let's say. So let's move on to that. So from there, let's move on. Your next step is flight school, warrant officer, candidate school. Take us to that. How'd you get there? Yeah, so, so I got there real quick. My wife's family is not military, but they lived in a neighborhood where everybody was. And here I was an E4 lower enlisted, we'll call it <clears throat> junior enlisted. I went to a baseball field where her little brother was playing baseball because she had to get the keys for something. And I go to meet her dad for the first time. And he's like, oh, you're in the army. Well, so are my friends here. Meet these guys. And he's throwing out these names, 
here's general this, colonel this, colonel that, you know, and we don't know what Mark does. I was just taken aback because you don't talk to these folks as, as junior enlisted. So it was a, a very humbling there. But Mark ended up being the head pilot for the U.S. Army Priority Air Transportation. And he was a former enlisted who went to Warrant Officer Candidate School as well. And he said, hey, are you interested in flying? And I had been. I had my packet in to the Air Force Academy in high school. And I ended up pulling it for various reasons. I think probably because I was afraid of missing the mark and, and trying to compete with people that were just as good, if not much better than me, and getting exposed a little bit. But uh, I thought, you know what, this is a great way to get back on track with my goals. So I started working towards flight school. He wrote me a letter of recommendation. I got selected. And in 2008, go to Warrant Officer Candidate School down in Fort Rucker, Alabama. And then what? That leads you to fly the Apache, the uh, AH-64D helicopters. Go through, you go through a bunch of little courses and your GPA racks up throughout there. And then at the end of that, uh, they, I mean, I think that there's a better ceremony for it now, but at the time they flipped the dry erase board around, the army needs this many Apaches, this many Chinooks, this many Kiowas and this many Blackhawks. And we'll go to number one in the class. What do you want? Uh, I was number two in my class, and I picked the first Apache in my class. So then I started the Apache course, I think, uh, a couple months later. Of all the different helicopters you could fly, how'd you pick the Apache? I, golly, I haven't been asked that in, in a long time. For me, it was just about the mission. If I was going to do something flying, I, I wanted to do something that was going to make an impact. And coming from the infantry, I knew that there are guys on the ground that are going to be in combat that are going to want that support. And I think that I could imagine maybe myself being, being that support to be able to understand these guys a little bit better and, and hopefully offer that uh, fire support as needed to, to make a difference. And never serving myself, but just fascinated by the military, reading a whole bunch of books about it. So the Apache, the Hellfire missiles, like the tank killers, is that, is that what you're shooting off there? Yep. The Apache has the Hellfire missile, 30 millimeter bullets in the chain gun and 2.75 inch rockets on the side that are various kinds. You got the point detonating ones. You got the ones that launch a, a flare off uh, to illuminate the area. Some other cool ones. So say our military's in a tank battle. Those Apaches are just really bad news to the other side's tanks. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's absolutely fair to say. I mean, I, like, again, right place, right time. <clears throat> very humbled and honored to be able to, to to fly that aircraft, but man, what an impressive piece of machinery! Extremely capable against whatever enemy we we find ourselves facing. So, armor, yes. Also, dismounted troops in the mountains where we found ourselves shortly thereafter, flying around and and making sure that our guys on the ground are are safe, just giving them an opportunity to get home to their families. Awesome. So let's move on. So your next step, I see you were then assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. How, how does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, left flight school in 10, moved to North Carolina with the 82nd, and that was, so I got to the 82nd in October. Less than a year later, I was on my deployment after a year of train up. So we then deployed to Afghanistan in the late summer of 2011. The two, 2011, you, you're in Afghanistan. Do you remember the moment where you fly into Afghanistan, you get out? And you're there. Do you remember that moment? 
I do, I do. And oh, I was wow. listening to to your podcast, uh, and you had a gentleman on, and you asked him a similar question, and he was like, "Oh, I was scared. I can relate to that." It, we, you, you leave your families, you fly across the the ocean, you land in. Uh, I think we were in a, in a base in Kyrgyzstan. We stayed for a couple of days. You get on a smaller plane, and you're flying south. Uh, and we are over some arbitrary line on a map somewhere, and the the crew chief on the aircraft says, "Hey." We're crossing this line. Everybody gear up. So you put your bulletproof vest and your helmet on and, and you're just like, man, this is, this is real. Like we're, we're going somewhere where you got to wear this. So, uh, the feeling set in and, and we flew into Bagram, which is right outside of Kabul. And that's in like a, a, a bowl of mountains in the, in the low area. So to get down in there, you kind of have to lose altitude aggressively. So here I am kitted up and we're descending rapidly. And it's like, man, this is, this is no kidding what it is. We land, they drop the ramp, and there's an Air Force kid in a t-shirt and a reflective belt, his earmuffs, and he's like, hey, what's happening? <laughs> like, oh, man, what was I so worried about? But there was more excitement to come later, but uh, left left Bagram maybe a day or two later and got to our base um, in eastern Afghanistan, where we were working out of to support all of the ground units that were uh, kind of around us at that time. Right. Uh, you you write in the uh, your first engagement was in 2012. Could you speak to that? Yeah. Yeah. So I got there October and it starts getting cold and there is such a thing as a fighting season out in Afghanistan. The weather turns bad and uh frankly the enemy just kind of closes the shop on operations for a little bit. <clears throat> and we're in a being at that point in the war a little bit more of a defensive posture. We were flying it was May mid-May and we were flying, we had just flown maybe three, four hours or something, supporting different units, nothing nothing major, just kind of keeping a, a lookout for them. And we land at the refuel point. <clears throat> and uh, I think our radios crackled and, and said that the Chinooks that were way up north at a base were receiving fire from the ground. They were getting shot at. And so my team leader at the time uh, there were two two Apaches, four pilots. Uh, you know, said, "Hey guys, like, does anybody object to going up there?" And I, honestly, that's what we came here for. So we take the thirty minute flight, even though most of us know chances are that the guys shooting at these helicopters aren't going to be there thirty minutes later. It was a pretty remote area that we were going up to, and that infantry company had lost two soldiers to an improvised explosive device on mother's day just before this. And so my gunner, I was in the back seat of gun two and my gunner from a long way away, kilometers and kilometers away, sees something on his sensor that he's able to depict. And he's laying it out for me perfectly. It's like, do you see these guys that are walking this? You can see their equipment laid out on the, on the culvert, look, they've got security elements that are posted on either side of the road, um, north and south. This looks like an IED. And the guys that we were watching were putting another improvised explosive device in the tracks around the crater from the previous um, explosive device. So we called the ground guys uh, that own that area. And we told them what we saw and they said, yep, that's consistent with that kind of uh, behavior. And if you can get a little closer and define what weapons they have, uh, call us back and, and we may approve you to strike. So we got a little closer and this is middle of the night. 
pitch black and we are way up in the mountains and there are mountains that are way higher than me on my left and right. And I remember flying by and Adam, my front seater looked, uh, and he was like, Hey, don't get any closer than this. Cause he's looking at his camera, looking at these guys and he didn't want to tip them off that we were there. And I said, Adam, I can't go any farther. There's a mountain to my right. So we, he's like, all right, cool. Just, just keep it going. And we came back around, went behind some high ground, called the ground guys. They cleared us to fire and gun one shot uh, a missile and we shot a missile and it struck the, I remember seeing the explosion of the missile and then the secondary explosion setting off the device that they were about to put in the road and they scatter. And when they do that, you kind of have to, you have to keep a mental tally of what direction they're going all over the place. Cause you don't want to, you want to make sure that the only people that you're inflicting damage to are the ones that are, are guilty of being there on site. So you're taking note of, of descriptions and everything and really going through the list. And we ended up staying on station for about an hour and a half. And I think the total tally that we had that night was 13 killed. Um, wow. And I remember getting landing. I mean, I remember another team came up, traded out with us and we were flying back and I had been flying the whole time and we were what was called power limited. We didn't have a hundred percent of the power available to fly. So you had to fly uh, cautiously so that you didn't slow down the rotor. I think the easiest way to describe it is if you are driving with your hand out the window on the highway and you turn your hand too much, your hand just falls, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you want to keep that to where it's still producing lift, um, mm -hmm. the helicopter blades. So uh, if you pull too much of the collective, change the, the pitch on all the blades, um, then you're going to be in a detriment where you're going to have to descend quickly. So we couldn't do that. So white knuckle flying, basically, just trying to describe that. And I remember wow. asking Adam, hey, man, would you mind, do you mind flying? And he's like, oh, yeah. And my hands were just so tight from grasping the controls we landed and shut down and, and we're walking away from the aircraft and the crew chief big shout out to the guys that maintained our aircraft we could not do what we did without their absolute diligence these guys were working on these birds constantly to keep us flying and uh some of my favorite people ever that i've ever served with were the ones keeping us in the air <clears throat> but uh this that one of my favorites was up on top and he shines his flashlight to, to check the bird over. And he's like, Hey chief, check this out. He shines his light through the rotor blade. And he's like, you got shot. There's a bullet hole right here. Uh, oh. and the, the, he, he rotates the blades around. He's like, Oh man, that's really close to where you were sitting too. Uh, it was a, that was a real moment for me. You know, you're talking the difference between landing and Bagram and being like, this is real to that moment. That was real. There's this thought that, you know, big sky, little bullet, probably not going to get shot. And that brought uh, the, the sky a lot closer that day. Wow. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's fascinating. You mentioned June 1st, 2012, the Taliban drive a car bomb, 22,000 pound explosive into uh, your compound. Yeah. Yeah. So in retaliation for our strike in May, I think, and some follow on operations that were <clears throat> successful in eliminating some of the threats uh, in some of our operating areas, the Taliban worked up a strike. And yeah, after we get off here, maybe take a look, but you can get on YouTube and look for Fob Salerno, June 1st IED attack. Way after the fact, Al Jazeera put out a, a little 
clip about it uh, three or four minutes you can see it but uh yeah effectively they led with a twenty-two thousand pound explosive packed truck blew a hole in the wall and then a van of them pulled up got out and they were armed we'll say to the teeth uh rpgs machine guns grenades all of it they entered through the wall and just start shoot uh, middle of the day and uh fortunate but everybody everybody over there is carrying a weapon at the time and they had blown up the dining facility right there on the other side of the wall it kind of collapsed so all these soldiers are coming out from lunch uh and they stopped them in their tracks pretty much but i just remember it was a little disappointing i think they uh, they shot an RPG and it hit a double decker uh, shower building that was right next to where I sleep. And I thought, how inconvenient is that? That uh, <laughs> that now I have to go somewhere else to find a shower. But uh, in all seriousness, it was terrifying because I had just gotten on shift and we were sitting there waiting. And the explosion goes off and it sounded like a rocket landed right outside of our office, which generally we would go launch for. They would give us the area where the launch happened and we would go see what we could see. So our initial reaction was, we got to get to the helicopters. And as we're checking out our stuff to go fly for the day, uh, we start hearing the gunfire and the RPGs and everything. And it was a lot bigger than that. And I was the first Apache up that day. And if you go see that YouTube video, you see a, a vantage point from high ground looking down on the base. I remember flying over that guy, calling him out, saying we see an individual. And the rules of engagement at the time were, uh, that individual doesn't have a weapon, so he's not involved. Um, and I knew I had a bad feeling about it. But then when the the clip came out a couple months later, it was like, I knew it. <laughs> I knew that guy was involved. So that kind of sucked. But oh. uh, Yeah. So what's it like with the rules? I mean, sometimes you feel, I mean, being untrained, not part of the military, but you see the Americans have so many more rules and so many more uh, just procedures and rules of engagement do, do you, does it ever feel like your hands are tied behind your back a bit or do you feel like it's ever an unfair advantage to the enemy well you have human decency on your side where they just they, they're they're hiding behind kids they're you know hiding things in the holy places where that's something where you wouldn't see us do but you you're fighting against someone who does that when you're mixing it up how hard is that to deal with i mean it's extremely frustrating you're you're talking about setting restrictions for yourself that really just define your limitations and the enemy is not a stupid enemy they are a smart enemy uh and they will navigate in that gray area that your restrictions provide and i mean you think about it that's <clears throat> that's an insurgency they're not going to fight toe-to-toe -to -toe using your your rules right they're going to find the the way to be the underdog and fight from the bottom and and so yeah, they would do a lot of that. And I think persistence and creativity and ingenuity, trying to find all these different ways to, to work within your rules of engagement and be absolutely legal. Because I can also tell you in an insurgency, you know, the, the term I'm sure you've heard, winning hearts and minds, you are not going to <laughs> ruin your chances of, of showing that you're supporting people by shooting the wrong people. You've got to make sure that anytime you're engaging, that it's absolutely correct. And just as we saw in Vietnam, it's very hard to find when the difference between a, a civilian and a combatant is whether or not they're holding a weapon. That's very tough. So 
yeah, there were a lot of opportunities where you, we were flying around and based off of what the ground guys were seeing, what they were getting into and what we would see that we just weren't able to take action. But at that point in the war, it was good. We actually picked up radio chatter. They would, they would watch us take off and then they would make a call to their friend and then their friend would make a call and then they would see us and they could, they could track us the whole way. And an interpreter once heard it that they referred to us as the monster. So they would say the monster is entering the valley. And I think that that's, uh, that's a pretty cool moniker to, to take on that, that we're, we're the monster that shuts stuff down. That's, that's good stuff. About this July 4th, you were the pilot command check called in early to relieve a team under fire for a stranded American. Yeah. So July 4th, I was set to take my piloting command check ride, my test to say, you're responsible enough to be the pilot in charge, holding the keys, first time driving the car without mom and dad kind of thing. And I remember shaving and a crew chief ran in and was like, hey, they need you to go brief now. Team one's getting shot at. And to talk about that gray area. Daytime and daylight engagements were very rare at that point. But unbeknownst to me, the night before, couple of helicopters had put some guys in way up in the mountains up top and some bad guys down below had observed this and they felt like fighting that day so they walked all through the night up to the mountainside to pick a fight with these guys that got put in and unfortunately the news that we got the briefing that we got was there was an american that was shot in the head and he fell down a hillside with another guy and they're isolated based off of Americans up here, they fell down this cliff, bad guys down here shooting up. Anytime these guys would come over, they're getting shot at and they need support. So our team was up there and then helicopters don't like flying in high, hot, heavy conditions. So they're up there trying to pick out these bad guys that are shooting in dense foliage and everything, trying to make it safe enough for the American that's isolated and the American that was shot in the head to, to get out. So we rush through our brief uh, pre-flight. We get in the bird. We fly the you know twenty-five whatever minutes up there, and all these different players are talking about you know they've got the medevac spun up and they're sitting at the base um, where the ground guys were from my previous engagement in May. Uh, they're sitting at that base, but they can't refuel there, so they're like trying to figure out, hey, can we get in? What equipment is needed? Uh, a guy breaks through on the radio and is like, look, I don't care if it's a shoelace or whatever it is, just get me out of here. And we were like, whoa, 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 who are we talking to? And he was like, it's me. I got shot in the head. Uh, I haven't taken my helmet off. I don't want my brains to fall out. And we were like, whoa, like, you know, here's a news twist. This guy's still alive. So this, this urgency came back overhead of like, all right, let's get this guy out. What do we need to do? And, uh, we, we asked him to mark his position and he had a smoke grenade. So he drops a smoke grenade that catches a brush on fire and the space that this guy has to stand is like no wider than a desk. I mean, he's standing on a cliffside in a crag, just like shooting down at the enemy, trying to stay as tight up against this wall as he can. And so we, we see where he's, he's positioned. And then we're like, do you have anything to mark where the enemy is? Cause the, I mean, mountainous terrain, you, you, you're not really seeing too much detail there in the middle of the day. Something that makes the Apache great at that time was the infrared camera that they had. You could see thermal. So hot spots stand out. You could be able to pick out a cigarette on the side of a mountain at night. In the daytime, it was a lot harder. 
just to be able to see just based off of camera limitations and everything. So he says he has a grenade launcher. So he takes this grenade launcher, shoots it over the side. We see the concussion impact. We start lighting up this tree line with what we've got and the shooting stops. So then the medevac is able to come in. They put a medic down on a hoist and he's running around with a little uh, handheld radio trying to talk to people. He's on the wrong shelf. They hook him back up and hover over, drop down. Their blades were probably within five feet of the mountainside. Some of the most incredible flying that I've ever like personally gotten to witness. I love writing the sworn statement for that award that went in. So they, they drop this medic down. It's, it's July 4th. So they've got um, public affairs on board. There's a great picture. It's on the desktop of my computer of the medic with his arms around these two guys. They get him back on the bird, take him back to the hospital. In the meantime, they had said that this guy lost his rifle and it's all kitted out with all the cool guy stuff on it, the scopes, the lasers, whatever. And so they're trying to figure out, well, we need to put some more guys back in to find that rifle. And we said, all right, well, we'll be there to secure the landing site. So they brought in more guys, put them in, and then they're all secure. We head back to the base to refuel, rearm, and uh, get ready to get these guys out that night. Our office was maybe 40 yards from the hospital. And so when we landed and shut down, I went straight to the to the hospital, went in and and asked if they had a gunshot wound to the head. And they were like, oh yeah, he's back here. So this guy had gotten hit in the back of the head and it traveled up his helmet and out the top. Whoa. And I, so I, I walk in and I see this guy and I'm like, oh my gosh, it is so good to see you. He has zero clue who I am, you know, does not recognize me. He's like, who, who the hell are you? I was like, oh, I'm, I'm Wolfpack 6'3". Uh, I was just talking to you on the radio, you know, and he's like, Oh my God, it's so good to see you. You know, it just like, man, it's, it's just a huge moment. And then we were like, we can't really offer this guy much. I mean, other than the fact that we just, you know, made sure he got out of there. Okay. And he was like, man, I would love to go see that helicopter. We were like, oh, it's parked right over here. Come on. So we took him and, and got up there in mid conversation. We're like, yeah, uh, we're not done. You know, tonight we got to go back and get your boys out of there. Cause they're still looking for your rifle. He stops me and he's like, whoa. What kind of infantryman would I be if I left the battlefield without my rifle? I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, yeah, when the medevac came down to Hubbard, picked me up, I thought if nobody's shooting at them, they're not going to shoot at me. So I walked out, grabbed my rifle and got on the bird. I was like, I got to make a phone call. Real quick. <laughs> <laughs> so so they, we, you know, we told them that they found the rifle good to go. Night falls. We go back up there, shoot illumination rounds, the, the, the rockets with the parachute flare, get those guys out of there. You know, great day. Nobody died. The only injury was that uh, gunshot wound to the head, which incredible that he was only like a scratch. He got some staples, but holy cow. So we're, we're wow. heading back. And oh, by the way, this is still an evaluation. So I get a mock emergency procedure from the guy that I'm flying with who says, oh, you got to do this. So I had to do a, a tested emergency type landing and and finish out the day and just after that, I was just like, I don't even know where to begin with the debrief. And he's like, well, how do you think you did? And I said, you're the evaluator. And he goes, I think you passed. So um, July wow. 4th, yeah, like pretty pretty cool to be a part of that. I'm just, again, humbled that that we got to be in that position that day. So Ryan Stumpf, wherever that guy is, I'm glad and I hope he's doing well. 
Ryan, first off, if you're listening, wow, thank you for your service. That is incredible. God, glad you made it. And uh, what a check ride. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a heck of a check ride. That's crazy. Thanks for sharing that. That's that's just so remarkable. Uh, hey, there's so much just, just moving on. Uh, you, you had a second deployment to Afghanistan with the 82nd Airborne in 14. Uh, but before that, Chinook crash and pre-deployment train up. What was that like being part of a, a, a Yeah. So, so this, this all leads up. I mean, that first deployment, just me and my wife and everything, uh, and, and no kids at this time. And then I'm in a position of seniority coming up in the second deployment. I'm a safety officer. So accident prevention, accident investigation in March. Uh, I remember getting a phone call that two Apaches had run into each other from our unit. And I mean, immediately you're just like, who, who is it? Cause that's, that's four guys probably that, that I know that, that I just lost. And whoever I was talking to on the phone told me who it was and miraculously none of them died. They all walked away from a midair crash, but it was a little intense because we, when you have these helicopter companies, they're all airframe pure. So you have Apaches over here, you have Blackhawks over here, you have Chinooks over here. When you deployed Afghanistan um, at that time, they were doing what was called task organization. So that they would take a company of each and throw them under leadership. Well, when you have somebody who isn't used to leading Apaches, they're not going to know how to mitigate the risks properly, right? I mean, it's just, you don't know what you don't know. And when you have type A personalities that are all excited about, yeah, we'll get the job done no matter what, sometimes it's not the easiest thing to stop and say, no, wait a minute, we, we should find a better way to do this. So I prefaced that with, I'm not trying to find fault in anybody's actions. I think I'm just trying to understand how decisions were made that led to that. Um, but at the time I was really negative about it. Oh, this guy doesn't know what we do and he made decisions and he doesn't want to take accountability for that. Well, when they had that crash, they removed that company from under that leader and put our company under that leader. So now there's stress there from like, oh, that risk mitigation that I was just talking about, that falls on me. I have to advise my commander on the risks of this. And clearly, that's not good news. Well, we go out to do high mountain training in New Mexico uh, a couple months later. And the first night we're there, the senior guys in the company are, are flying to do their mountain check. Very similar to Afghanistan, the terrain out there. It's kind of eerie, but... Um, we're flying around. I remember being near Las Cruces and flying south and I see a big flash. And I asked the guy that I was flying with, did you see that? And he said, yeah, I did. I wonder what that was. Radio start blowing up that a Chinook, one of the large school bus looking helicopters, twin blades that was carrying a bag of gas in the back, a humongous thing to be a mobile gas station. You fly out to a point, roll the hoses out, we land, hook up, refuel, and, and keep going on our way. Had had a tail strike. They were trying to land the back two wheels on the pinnacle and dip down just a little bit. And the blades had hit very complex maneuver. I think that they could have maybe they briefed it. And, and again, uh, you know, the, the, the risks were kind of mitigated from what people thought they could do, but, um, that, that aircraft crashed and the radios are just talking about them missing one of their crew chiefs and they don't know where he is. And so we land and the next day, being the accident investigator, one of them, uh, I go with our battalion safety guy on a Blackhawk. We fly up there and we're walking the mountainside looking for the remains of this soldier that had um, 
gone missing the night before from this crash and ultimately found his remains uh, charred underneath the ramp of the Chinook. And sparing the details, it was just a pretty impactful point for me, but rough, right? That that's now two accidents that we're going into and we're supposed to go to war with this unit. The stress is building. Um, and I'm not obviously turning to alcohol at this point, but good news, maybe a couple months later, we find out that my wife is pregnant with our first child. That's exciting. And we're supposed to, based off the mitigation of us not finishing our mountain training, they were like, we'll send this group to the lowest point in the country so that altitude isn't that much of a factor. And we'll send you latest. You'll go in October. So July, we go on leave. We get back in August and they go, hey, bad news. It's not Kandahar in October. It's this place called Shank in 10 days. So pack your stuff. So we had 10 days to go to Shank and Shank awful place that I remember from my first deployment landing. The base that we were at in at Salerno at least had some outdoor activities and everything. You fly up to Shank and you're very high up in the mountains and everything is covered with sandbags because those guys receive indirect fire, rockets and mortars constantly. So when we land there, yeah, that nothing had changed. Uh, definitely received a ton of indirect fire. I think we were there for 32 days and I think we 55 or something like that rockets that, that hit. Wow. And so it was a conditioned response. You'd hear this alarm go off. And I mean, I, I say a ton, there are plenty of folks out there that are like, yeah, that I would have loved to have a diet of 55 over, you know, 30 days as to opposed to what they got. I, I'm not trying to take that away from anybody, but, um, you know, a, a rocket or a mortar and, and you never know which one's got your name on it. You just hear the alarm go off and you're just waiting for the impact. And a, a lot of stress built with that too. So yeah, just going to shank, stress building, Hillary's pregnant, 10 days notice. I think I was trying to finish my degree at the time. So I had to pack uh, wow. two days worth of trigonometry into like three, <laughs> three days to try to just get that done before I deployed and all the stress was building up. And I had been experiencing intermediate chest pain throughout that whole workup. Yeah. And then, then there was never a good time to bring that up, right? Because yeah. You don't want to be the first one to raise your hand and say, hey, I've got an issue that's not going to let me go forward with you guys. So you're like, oh, I'll just eat it. It's fine. Whatever. And Hillary was like, you're going to want to talk to somebody about that. And I was like, well, I, yeah, but it it never happens in the aircraft. It was like a three to five second just feels like a knife jabbing right in my chest. If I breathed in deep, it got worse. And then it would just go away. I'm like, all right, cool. Well, whatever. So during that deployment, we move from shank go down to kandahar i remember flying around one night and something mild happened and i felt it and i was like all right i made a deal with my wife that if i felt it while i was in the aircraft i was going to say something i don't think it's fair to the guys that i'm flying with to not know that i have a potential health condition and i don't know what it is so um, i brought it up and i just said hey i've got you know i've got chest pain and the, the flight doc said you know this could ground you and i said at this point i, I don't really know what else to do. And my commander had asked me, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, I want you to make a decision. I don't want to make a decision because if I say, oh, send me home, then I'm, then I'm a voluntary quitter and I'm leaving my guys in a war zone and I'm going home. Or if I say, no, I want to stay, uh, I'm potentially putting my guys at risk because I'm not up to a hundred percent. So it's a lose-lose and I just need somebody else to make that decision. Ultimately, he chose to send me home and, you know, 
I, I think I took a quite a reputation hit with that because I'm I'm at home. I'm trying to figure out the the chest pain stuff, going through a battery of tests. Luckily, my guys all make it home safe. Uh, but when they make it home, nobody's making eye contact with me because I'm the one that left early. You know, and it's like, hey guys, I'm I'm here. You know, wow. it's like, it, it, that's a that's a lot of stress too, right? So then it's like I'm grounded. Uh, there's really no light at the end of the tunnel for that. I'm not really welcomed at my unit because I'm not rowing anymore. I'm not rowing the boat with them. So it's like, yeah, cool. I mean, I appreciate you being around, but what are you doing for me lately? Like you being grounded, I have to work more. So appreciate you. And it was rough. So I went to another unit and I, I really had time to be removed from the situation and uh, started taking care of myself more physically, working out a lot more and finding the value in that. And and that really started that road to recovery. Ultimately, the the tests that they were giving me were like, oh, well, chest pain is usually, maybe it's the heart. So they did the echocardiogram. That wasn't it. Chest x-ray, nothing wrong there. That's good news. The digestive tract, okay, they gave me heartburn medication. That didn't fix it. I was wearing the monitor to click the button any time I had an event. And then it boiled down to, well, maybe it's mental health. And I was like, no, that's... I'm, I'm like, I'm so aware of what's going on. There's no way that my mental health is deficient enough to cause me chest pain. There's no way that I'm not handling stress well enough. Uh, you're telling me that I can't carry the same load that other guys are asked to carry. That makes me weak. I can't, that's, that, I'm, I refuse to accept that. It's gotta be something else. Mm -hmm. Well, really what it was, my perspective and just the way that I was perceiving stress and and going through life and navigating it, my, um, my perspective and perception became reality. And I couldn't tell you that at the time, I think my perspective was so far off. Um, did a lot of projecting. They must think that I, this, they were like, well, we'll put you through, um, therapy. And I was, I mean, I was trying to make light of it. Like, okay, well, we're going to go do some talky talk it out kind of time and everything. And they're like, we could do medication too. And I was like, no way, man. There's no way that you're going to give me medicine to take the edge off because I don't want to be medicated in a mediocrity. My stress is what puts me at the forefront of being able to succeed at a high level. So don't yeah. take that away from me. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't healthy. So that all that, you know, talky talk stuff actually ended up really working and just changing my perspective on things and really trying to gain back control of, of what I was thinking about, because I think just on a, on a broad term of it, if I'm looking at option a, and then from a either a one or a two can happen. And then a one, one, a two, two kind of thing. And so far down the road, well, you can't control all those third, fourth, fifth, sixth layers, mm -hmm. figure out what plan a is, figure out what B is. And if you need a, a you know, the tertiary one, figure that out too and and just go from there i mean set yourself up well but don't stress about what isn't isn't on the table yet because you'll never be able to control all of those options and then it becomes way too heavy so that was a part of it for me wow that's so much to unpack there first off thank you for sharing yeah. that yeah. you got just a couple things one you're under incredible amount of stress Right. You are, first of all, you're in a combat zone. 
the stress, like mental health, it's probably like, it's probably just, I don't say getting into vogue, but like a generation ago, they're like, ah, tough it out. Uh, don't, men don't talk about their feelings or, uh, you're not, you're not allowed to, to look weak, but like mental health is a vital sign now where if you like, like the brain controls the, like the mind controls the body, they're so connected. And you know, you can literally get physical symptoms from your mental health. Like you're under so much stress. Right. You mentioned you, ju- you're married. You have a baby on the way. You're, you're bringing trigonometry homework onto, into the combat zone. You, you're flying combat missions. You're, you're on an outpost in Afghanistan. Unbelievable stress you're under. Unbelievable. Like it's great. Then you mentioned even before that you had the randomness of artillery and rockets. Like you said, 55 dropped in 38 days. If like one's dropped in 38 days, that's stressful for the average person, right? And you don't, you said you don't know which one has your name on it. Uh, getting back to the artillery, like how close did like the randomness of that? What was the closest a rocket or an artillery when you were of those 55? What's the closest anyone got to you? Uh, so they had, they had concrete bunkers on the, um, I'll send this picture to you afterwards, but they have these concrete bunkers on the flight line and, I remember ending a flight, looking for people that were shooting rockets at us, not finding anything because again, they're smart. They're going to set these rockets up uh, on timers. They're going to be long gone. These things are going to go off and then, you know, you're not going to find them. Uh, So we landed and I remember having the data card. I was handing it to the Lieutenant I was flying with and the alarm goes off and I just dropped right down in front and the alarm is still going off. And I look I'm laying in front of a hellfire missile. I was like, I don't know if this is the best <laughs> spot to be. So I like, I get up and I grab the guy I was with and I'm like, we got to get to the, I say bunker. It's this like concrete U flipped upside down and we run inside and it hit just like on the, the backside of this sandbag bunker from us. But inside that bunker, somebody had spray painted a thumbs up. And so I'm in there. This thing goes off and we're looking at my buddy takes a picture of me pointing at this thumbs up and I like that was close that was close my roommate though Joe this guy cool as ice he would just be like in our room playing the playing the guitar or whatever alarm goes off here I am like diving under and it doesn't matter it's a mattress you know but like hey whatever layer of whatever I've got between me and a rocket probably a better chance of me getting home and my roommate, Jay, was just like, dude, if it's my time, it's my time. And if it's not, I'm not going to worry about it. And I was like, I don't understand how you can not worry about it. You know, like how, wow. how good for you that you don't have to worry about that. But really, it was like, I just let the stress of that unknown just absolutely consume me. And it was unhealthy. I remember getting back home from that and I was walking out of Walmart. And a lady's phone goes off with the yeah. same alarm tone as the incoming alarm. And I think I like, I like bombed Hillary and dropped to the ground real quick, immediately recognized like, Hey, like that's a lady's phone. You're good. They're not dropping IDF at Walmart. Popped back <laughs> up. I was like, that's, that's one for the kids. Like, holy cow, you know, and, and it fades, you know, I like for, for me, for me, it faded. Uh, luckily it was just like a, a return, but you, you don't, you don't go from that being your immediate reaction and instinct to, to not overnight, just cause you flew home. 
the story you mentioned at Walmart a few weeks back, we were lucky enough to have Robin Bartlett, who was an Army Ranger and 82nd Airborne member in Vietnam. And he mentioned after his combat tour, uh, he was back at a base. And I think they either started the morning with a cannon shot or something like that after the after they raised the flag. There was like a uh, like a ceremonial cannon shot to begin the day or some ceremony. And he literally hits the dirt. Like he just got back from, he just got back from Vietnam and he literally dives on the ground. Like it's just like an instinctual, right? It's just, it's just, yeah. it's just burned into you. Like, how can't you do that? Oh my gosh. Chest pain. Would you say it was anxiety? What was causing the chest pain? Yeah. They, so the, you know, all the, all the tests, I think I took like this, uh, I think it was called the MMPI. It's like 567 multiple choice questions. And they try to narrow down, you know, I like gardening. I, you know, just weird questions like that, you know. And uh, I took that and based off of my scores from that, they were like, well, you don't meet the criteria for uh, a panic disorder, but your symptoms are similar to that. And I was like, man, I really don't, my preconceived notions of a panic disorder are, oh, I don't shut down and, and rock myself and yeah. hearing all this going. It's just, I'm aware of what's going on. It's just a little bit of chest pain. And they were like, hey, look, man, the, like, Stress is the body's non-specific response to the, any demand placed upon it. So you don't get to pick how your body responds to stress. Your yep. body's going to pick that. Yep. So they they ended up just saying like, how can we lower your stress levels? And then the interesting thing they were like, what was scary to me was they were like, well, are you feeling it now? I'm like, well, no, but am I as stressed out as I am? No, because I'm not in in Afghanistan. I don't have a newborn on the way that I haven't even met yet. I've met him. I'm raising the kid. I'm through with trigonometry. Like all the, all these cumulative stressors have kind of dissipated, but that wasn't a comfort to me. That was a scary thing because I equate it to during this whole time, it was great because I was able to put into words a lot of my outlook on life. So I was like, all right, what's my foundation for stress management? And cool little moniker for, you know, faith, family, friends, fitness. All right. So now I've got four pillars, four legs to a table and I've got this tabletop and you can, if those pillars are strong, you can load a ton of weight on top of that table. Now the concept though, is the table's cracking, right? Because of the stress. Okay. Let's deload. Let's take all that weight off the table. And let's look at it. Oh, one of those pillars is fractured. Probably let's call mine fitness. I wasn't taking care of myself. Well, you can't just take the weight off the table and not do anything to fix the leg that's fractured. You've got to fix the fracture, right? Build that pillar up, use the time that your stressors are removed and get back to it. So you're strengthening that because you don't know when those cumulative stressors are going to add back up, like, oh, I'm good now. Okay, well, maybe take another college class. Oh, here comes another deployment. Here comes another kid. Whatever the case is, and all that stress comes back, and I haven't done anything to improve my chances of of handling that stress, it's going to be the same result or worse. So I put a lot of effort into kind of analyzing where I was with all of those things. How are my family relationships? How are my friends? Am I reaching out to people that I care about? Am I working out consistently? How's my faith side of things? And if that's not something that that people find themselves, that's fine. You know, I mean, triangle is probably one of the most solid shapes in the universe. So just whatever keeps you going, make sure those pillars are strong enough and you'll be able to sustain so much more weight you would if those were fractured. Yeah, getting back to you, you asked your commanding officer to make a call because you didn't want to be the one leaving, but you didn't want to be in the cockpit when maybe an event happened where you couldn't perform. 
But then when you left and you re re-entered with your your crew, your team, they were kind of like distance. How did that make you feel? That's really rough. Like you were in the game, you were there and you leave. And then how does that make you feel? That is such a hard call to leave and then not feel like part of the crew when when you guys all get back together. What's that like? Great question. The awful, the, the, the word is awful, right? But Horrible. what it did for me, what it did for me was put me in a position where I had some tough introspection or introspective perspective to take on. And I had nowhere else to go to dump stuff on anybody else but myself. So I'm looking at this as a, where can I take accountability? Where am I responsible? And how do I explain this versus whatever? And a lot of my close friends there, they knew what I was going through because they would see it when we were riding on the bus over to the flight line that we're just sitting there talking about fantasy football. And then I double over grab my chest and I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. Coming to explain it. Like if guys leave a war zone because they've been injured uh, in combat, you know, they, they have a bullet hole. They are missing an appendage, something like that. There's something visible that you can say, this is damaged. You don't get the benefit of seeing inside somebody else's headspace or internal side of that. So you kind of take them at their word. And even then you're going to filter it through a perspective of your experiences. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of that. That's like, you know, you'd say something like, yeah, I mean, this deployment's really tough for me. Well, how many have you been on? Well, this is my second deployment. Oh yeah. Talk to me when you have four, talk to me when you've missed three kids being born and like heart goes out to them, but it was like, okay, maybe, maybe I don't make this so much about me. Maybe I put effort elsewhere and stop putting it on myself for, for, oh, you know, the, you have it so hard. This is bad. This is that. And start changing the perspective to, to find <laughs> there's a, there's a thing in the army that they talk about hunt the good stuff and the way that they project that sometimes, depending on who's giving that training, it's like 99% of your world could be going wrong, but you got that 1%, hang on to that 1% with dear life and your life will turn around. I kind of disagree with that. I think that, Hey, 1%, that's good. Let's look at that 99% and see where we can kind of change the way we're looking at those 99 and maybe offload some of that to not give yourself that cumulative stress. So to to get back to your question, yeah, it made me feel awful, but it was like, all right, I'm responsible for me and what I can do and not how other people are going to perceive me. So really, I can put effort into my efforts and where I put my energy, thoughts, and attention. Yeah, you know, that's a very stoic response. If you study stoicism at all, or or Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, you can control your own actions, not other people's perceptions or or the way they respond to the stimulus in front of them. You can only control your own game, right? That's all you can do. You're doing everything possible. You're volunteering. What you mentioned, it reminded me of, if you ever read Stephen Ambrose's uh, Band of Brothers and the amazing miniseries by Steven Spielberg and Hanks, the Band of Brothers on HBO. There were there was a scene where there was a group of there's a couple of guys that jumped in D-Day with the 101st, and then they were in Market Garden and they did the first couple operations, but were injured and went away and weren't with them in Bastone, and then rejoined them after they went through their rehab or whatever it was after Bastone, and they were like the outsiders again because they weren't with them through like the really hard grind or like that, that one defining moment. And even guys, even though they jumped in D-Day and were, and, and they did multiple missions with them and went through training with them, 
experiencing just what you did. I guess that's just, I guess that's something that's been going on since the dawn of fighting, where if you step away for a second, that group, there's a chance that, that, that you could be perceived that way. So I, I don't know, maybe that's human nature. It's I think really it is. I think, oh, it's, it's really hard, but I think it's so hard. A good, a good way to look at that though, you don't always have to compare the way other people are carrying the same load, right? Like, to, to, to what you're going through. Uh, people go through different things in different ways and have different experiences leading up to it. And maybe you're stronger for it, or maybe you're weaker for it, but you can't compare yeah. your journey one for one to somebody else's and expect the same results. If the, yeah. you know, if, if the, the workup wasn't the same. So, sure. you know, to, to have a touch of humanity there, you're able to kind of understand that other people have different, uh, experiences leading into things and, and maybe you meet them where they are and that'll help you understand the journey that they're on a little bit better. Well, okay, if we um, moving on the next phase. So after you kind of get your health back in order, you get reassigned to Kansas in the first infantry division and deployed to Iraq. Could you talk about that stage of your uh, career? Yeah. So worked really hard. Uh, success is there. I was really stubborn about it. And I, I, I set a goal for myself that I wanted to get back up um, to be able to fly again. And I remember having that conversation with the doc that he said, well, what do you, do you want to fly again? I said, I want to be healthy enough to fly again, but yeah, I do. And I don't want to just, I don't want to have you stamp the paper and say, I'm good if I'm not. So I really wanted to put the work in to make sure that I was good. So that's approved and they wouldn't move me until I was up, uh, medically. So I stayed at Fort Bragg for eight years when the normal moving cycle is, is about four. So I was there for eight. And then finally in 2018, we moved to Manhattan, Kansas, just down the street from K-State. And mm -hmm. it was an awesome area to, to be in. But here I am with, with new opportunity and I'm, I've been removed from the game a little bit. And it's odd because now you're fighting with people's expectations. Oh, this guy's been flying for X amount of time. He's got this much deployment. And you know, you don't want to say, oh, hey, I've been out of the game for two and a half years. <laughs> you know, you want to show up and kind of ride a, you set your own perceptions, but at the same time, like, hey, let's, let's kind of take it easy. I realized in that two and a half years, I lost so much just of the, the sharpness and the, uh, not motivation, because the motivation's still there, but the early drive to be that successful, you know, you're, you do kind of get comfortable resting on laurels and say, well, you know, it'll work out or maybe it won't, I don't need to be at the top of my game. And it, it takes a lot to shift that mentality into putting it to where you are absolutely maxing out your effectiveness. So yeah, we train up for going to Iraq. I had a really cool job there. We were, were going and it's at the tail end of dealing with ISIS. So I was deployed there. I got to work with a bunch of different folks, uh, different, different countries and everything. It was an interesting time, but it, an important piece of my timeline there. When we moved to Kansas, I think we got there and maybe in a week or two, we did, we hadn't even gotten all of our household goods delivered from the move. And I had to go to a month and a half long school back in Alabama. And while I was down there, I met a guy who was flying fixed wing airplanes for the army. And I said, I really wanted to do that. I've wanted to fly planes for years and I'm just trying to find a way to get there. And earlier the commander i had put in my packet this is prior to being grounded with the chest pain i put in my request to transfer to flying planes and my commander denied the request and he said 
no, uh, I, I need you too much. We need air mission commanders. We need pilots in command. I can't afford to lose you right now. And I felt slighted, but at the same time, what am I going to say? Oh, I didn't get what I want. I have chest pain, so I'm not going to fly anyway. Again, there was never a good time for it, but I've been trying that. And so I met this guy, Todd, um, great, great guy. And we were talking and he's like, well, I know how to get you over to the fixed wing community. Let me know when you're a year out and we'll go down this path and, and I'll get you in front of the right people and you can make the transition over to, to fixed wing. So a year out, I am sitting in Northern Iraq and I'm like, Todd, I am literally 365 days. I, I sent him a text. What do I need to do? And I want, let's make this happen. And he's, dude, it's not a good time. We just got our flight hours cut. We just hired a guy on Friday that we told he was going to be flying planes. And he's actually going to be flying Blackhawks. We told him that today, three days later. And I was like, hey, man, I hope you understand. I'm not trying to make a jump to something that I didn't sign on for. If you can't give me the assurance, I can't commit to that. I don't want to do it. And he's like, nope, totally understand. No problem. So that my plan A for the next thing in life was just cut out from under me. And I didn't know what direction to take it, but I'm looking at it. I'm in Iraq. I've got maybe five years left. That's probably two, if not three trips to nine months at a time to whatever theater we're in, maybe Afghanistan, maybe Iraq, maybe Europe at the time. I mean, constant workflow. You're, you're away from home. And I've got Oh, by the way, uh, when I left for Iraq, Hillary found out that she was pregnant again. So I guess there's the, there's the trend. Pregnancy happens, deployment happens. Um, and so now I've got two kids and I'm looking at that and I'm like, well, gosh, I, I want to be home for these kids. I, you know, what direction do I want to go in? I remember a guy that I flew with in Afghanistan the first two times and he had made the jump over to the Air Force and he was flying remotely controlled aircraft the RPA drones for them. And I see him constantly on social media talking trash to all the army guys that are still in, Oh, you joined a real service and all this stuff, you know, like the brotherly type of bickering. And I messaged him directly and I was like, Hey, are you talking trash? Um, because it's that much better or just because you want to kind of start something. And he's like, no dude, it's, it's a great life. Like it's good for families, this and this and this. Um, but the road's a little different. He was an officer. I was a warrant officer. So it might look a little different. So I came back from Iraq. I took my Air Force officer test. I knew I had to interview with this unit. Um, I came out and I interviewed in 2019 here in Pennsylvania. And they accepted me. And they said, yep, let us know when you're out. I had about a year left to separate. So that's that was late 2019, early 2020. And then I sign in with the Pennsylvania Air National Guard um, right here locally uh, on the premise that I'm going to go to officer training school. I was able to attend officer training school last summer. So I commissioned again. So now I'm a second lieutenant. So just in a, in a nutshell there, I was enlisted army, warrant officer army, made it to W3, signed in with the Air National Guard. They don't have warrants in the Air Force. So I went back to enlisted, waited for two years, doing whatever job I could to be helpful around the unit. So I was working in the personnel section and then go to OTS, go to the follow-on course. And now I've been flying the line with the MQ-9. So what are you flying now? The MQ-9? Yeah, the, the MQ-9 Reaper. Yep. That's remotely controlled. Yeah. Wow. So, drone, so basically now you're a drone pilot. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What theaters have you operated in? Can't really 
can't really detail on that, but just their their capability is worldwide with that. And it's a really fascinating ability be able to have an aircraft that has endurance for an amount of time and and uh, different abilities and stuff. So it's a, it's a pretty cool capability. Well, that is phenomenal. And one question I wrote down about ten minutes back, just to rewind. Yeah, what was it, just big picture. What so you're in Afghanistan fighting the Taliban? Compared to in Iraq fighting ISIS, C- compare and contrast the differences in Iraq, Afghanistan, ISIS, the Taliban. Could you just like broad swipe the difference what you, from what you noticed from your roles? To be honest, Joe, Iraq for me, thankfully, we were at the tail end. There were I did not engage anything in Iraq, so I wouldn't be the one to be able to point out the differences there. So the main combat you saw was Afghanistan versus the Taliban. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, understood. No, I appreciate that. Thank, thanks for clarifying that. Let's fast forward to your, you're in the Air National Guard, you're home, you're not deployed, you're with your family, but you're still in the service. What's your life like now? What a culmination of what I've wanted. You know, I still, I'm still able to serve my country. I'm still able to, to make a difference for the guy on the ground and do what I need to do. And then I'm able to come home and catch swim meets, soccer games, gymnastics awesome. practice. It, gives me the opportunity if nothing else to just show gratitude for everything that i've got and i'm so thankful that i have the opportunities that i do because man you know how it is being a dad is is good stuff so being able to be present i think is a it's a huge plus for my wife and kids that's amazing wrapping up just have a couple takeaways i'm going to run by you and then just a couple fun questions to wrap up here one of your big takeaways i just was so impressed with you mentioned if the loudest voice in your head, your own, tells you that you can't, you won't. Could yeah. you walk us through that? Uh, so again, just being in the right place in the right time, I've gotten to go through some pretty challenging times. And with, with that, I think I found that success was cumulative. And I can dig deep and go off of experiences that I have to say, I've been here before. Maybe it's not exactly like this, but I've seen this and I can. I can just go um, and I can, I can find a way. So if, if you tell yourself you can, you're probably right. And if you tell yourself you can't, you're probably right. Sounds like that great Henry Ford line from like a hundred years ago. I think he said something very similar. If you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right both ways. Right. That's, that's great. Either way. Yeah. But the second one, uh, one, a second of three, take care of your body. When you prioritize your physical fitness, your mental fitness will improve also. Yeah. Think about it. If it all works in concert with each other. Connected, man. The They're body, so the connected. Mind, the mind to the body. Yeah. The, I think uh, I found like the more the more abuse that your body is used to taking, the more abuse your mind can take. So I, I think yeah. that's probably why I just enjoy doing jujitsu now too. We'll touch on that in a moment, but you, you got- Yeah, the, absolutely. When you're in really good physical shape, right? And a lot of crap's coming at you mentally you're better dealing with it right and then the other way just say you're in a really bad headspace it's so easy to say uh, i i gotta have a beer or i gotta have a drink or you have two drinks or let's go to mcdonald's it's so easy to do that when the mind affects the body the body affects the mind right if you're under stress how many people you know that they get stressed out they need three glasses of wine and netflix at night to get through the day right but if you're it's like me it's yeah, me yeah, yeah. It ha- <laughs> we all do we all have our little weird things we do like that I'm way less inclined to have a night like that. Like if I get up early and train jujitsu, 
And maybe I write in a journal for five minutes, or maybe I go for a walk, or maybe I go to the gym and, and you work out for a half hour, right? And nothing major. You know, like, go ahead. A, a good friend and I were talking the other day about working out early, right? And I, I told him, I said, I like to work out before the sun comes up so that my excuses don't get any vitamin D. Yeah. I don't want them getting, <laughs> I don't want them getting stronger than me. So if I could start my day working out, maybe that's behind me. And if that's, you know, the hardest thing I go through, that it's, it's good. It's a good day. So good. Last one, the third of three takeaways I wrote it down. You want to run towards something, not away from something. And yeah, I mean, it's a realistic approach to creating your own pathway and what success looks like is defined for you. If, if you're on a direction that you want to go on, stop wasting time commiserating about that and start thinking, and that doesn't mean stop what you're doing right now, cut it clean and start over, but start formulating that plan. Think about what direction you do want to go in and what your success criteria looks like. I laugh about it, but that's pretty much all I've done. I I went down the enlisted route and then stopped there and was like, I think I want to go to flight school. And then I went through flight school. And then it was like, you know what? I think, I think I'm going to get out of the army. That's almost unheard of to hear about people that leave at 17 years of service and want to go to officer training school at that point. That's usually like OTS for me, a lot of younger officers starting their military careers. And it, But if you have your values that you can stick to and assess your actions and your behaviors against those values, you, you're going to see if you're in line or not. And at OTS, they kind of write down your four top values. Now narrow those down to your top two. And my boiled down through thinking, just humility and excellence. If you can go through life and you can have humility about the success that you've had, you're that much more prepared to start a new journey because you know what that feels like. And then if you constantly demand excellence of yourself, maybe you're not the best version of you that ever could have been, but maybe you could be the best version of you today because you're only, your today is only as good as yesterday. So what does your tomorrow look like? What that depends on what you're doing today. Don't be afraid to start over with that. That's great. Humility and excellence, really, really good. And then you mentioned too, uh, we mentioned jujitsu a couple minutes ago, how you and I met some of the most interesting people I ever met in my life. You meet on the jujitsu mat. Like it's just <laughs> absolutely. And, and you and I kind of spoke, I, it had to be six months ago, like in the beginning of the summer. We ran into each other and we're talking and I'm like, you got to come on the podcast. And you're like, let's do it. And we kind of sketched out this like six months ago. Okay, jujitsu, what, uh, what's your, what, what, what do you get out of it? What are you trying to get out of it? What brought you to it? Man, um, I think it was one of those things. I prob- probably, I'll just give credit to Jocko. Uh, <laughs> he's constantly hitting it up. Hey, do jujitsu, do jujitsu. It's got so many benefits. And you're like, let me, let me get into that. You know, you, if you find something that interests you, just get out there and start. I mean, that's the whole thing. Start something new, right? And the older you get, don't get stuck in your ways. If you can keep that growth mindset, you never know what experiences you're going to have. So I thought, well, why not go try it out? And then as soon as I did, it was like, oh, I wish I would have started this, I don't know, 15 years ago kind of thing. And just the, the, the benefit that you get is whether you want it or not, you're going to get humbled. Somebody's going to somebody's going to humble you there. And and so that keeps, that keeps the ego in check for sure. But you're learning something, you're working towards something, you're getting better. You, you feel better about it. It's so cool. What jujitsu has done for 
for me personally with, um, and I, it's not even like a, you know, Oh, you take your temper out on the mat. No, you go and you mm. think you're going to take your temper out on the mat. And yeah. then again, you get humbled by, by <laughs> whoever's been doing it for longer or more consistent. And then you're like, wow, maybe aggression and anger isn't the only way through things. Maybe you've got to step back, learn some things and, and gather some new tools to go through life. So if that's just a one for one, that's most valuable. There it is. Yeah. So anyone's watching on the, the YouTube channel, you see his blue Adaraxis shirt. I got the green uh, Adaraxis shirt on. Shout out to Randy and Laura Aiken, who started Adaraxis here in Ambler, where you and I met. Just a great school and a great vibe there. You mentioned like you come with the aggression in jujitsu. You get humbled faster when you bring the aggression to jujitsu. You come with all that aggression. You're going to open yourself up to some bad things happening if you're going against someone who knows what they're doing. Does that make sense? <laughs> it sure does. Hopefully, that's something we, we can keep going. Uh, a couple fun wrap-up questions. We started talking about that dinner table that you were sitting at with your family at 10, 12 years old. If you could go back, to that dinner table and talk to your family, what would you want to tell them? Thank you. As a kid, I thought I knew so much more than I really did, Joe. And I didn't have a vision for my parents just doing the absolute best they could. I always had to have an opinion about this way, that way, or why are you this way? And now as I talk about getting humbled off the mats, go through life, trying to raise kids to be productive members of society. They'll humble you real quick with what you think you're doing in the right way. But I, I would just try to express gratitude. I think that, gosh, they, my mom and dad put so much effort into just making sure that I was cared for and encouraged and supported. And uh, at the time, I think maybe after, after multiple thank yous, I would probably say, hey, don't be afraid to back me up and put me in my place a little bit when I'm trying to run from something that's going to make me better in the long run. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be? I think you hit it with the, with the number one takeaway on, on the sheet. You mind reading that one that you had? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first one, if the loudest voice in your head, your own, tells you that you can't, you won't. So the biggest takeaway that I would want people to hear is, if the loudest voice in your head, you, says that you can, you probably will. Maybe spend some time talking yourself up and, and, and listening a little bit more. Case, if you could spend the day with anyone, famous, not famous, alive or dead, who would you spend the day with? I, I lost my grandmother when I was in high school really early. She was an extremely impressive woman. She was a, the first female doctor in her field in the state of Ohio. And I think a lot about whether or not my actions and my whatever achievements I've had in life, uh, if they make her proud or not. And I think I would love to to sit down and talk to her and, and, and kind of get her viewpoints on not just me, but I'd love for her to know her great grandkids too. I think that would be a really fulfilling and benefit, uh, beneficial conversation. Oh, that, that'd be awesome. My grandma was a big part of my life. Started about 10 years ago and an extra day with her, that'd be pretty, it'd be pretty amazing with your grandparents. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, how about this last question? Case Wilson, if you had to get a quote or a saying 
tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? So here's what's funny about that, right? Uh, I don't have any tattoos. Not that I'm opposed to them whatsoever, but I am such an overthinker that I have not found the right thing to tattoo yet. And it's because I just overthink the hell out of pretty much everything. So I don't know. Just go for it. I guess maybe somewhere right here. Like, go for it. I think go for it is about as good <laughs> as a spot as as any to wrap this up. Case Wilson, first off, thank you for your service. People like you are the backbone of our country and provide the freedoms and the liberties and just the awesome life we live here in America would not be possible without the people like yourself doing what you do and multiple theaters are protecting us. So I appreciate you, man, all you've done, all the sacrifices you made. It's amazing to get to know you. Hopefully that continues. Thanks for joining us. And hey, man, I'll see you on the mat. All right, Joe, thanks so much for the kind words. I really appreciate the support. And thank you so much for the opportunity to just talk some stuff out. It's been an awesome conversation. Thanks. Take care, Joe.